Good morning and howdy. Man, I'm so glad to see you. I'm Josh, like Sean Alex. We're so glad that you're here. Also one of the ministers. What a privilege to celebrate Jesus together today. Can I get an oh yeah? Oh yeah. It's good. It's good. Well, this is it. Last day on our series, Today Resolution. So if you will, join me in the New Testament book of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Well, friends, like I said, this is the last week and we're going to dive into one final Today Resolution. Now, this whole series has been about looking at, instead of a whole year at a time, resolving to do something for a whole year, instead saying, is there something we can do just today? And if we do it well today, then maybe tomorrow when it's today again, maybe if we do that, if over the course of just day at a day at a day, could we see massive change? And we've been looking at small things that have massive impact to draw us to know God, love God, and celebrate Him more and more fully. And we're going to look at one today, but to set things up, I saw a tweet earlier this week that I thought, oh man, this is just so perfect. And, and I just want to encourage you this morning. I want to bless you with something. So turn your attention here. Let's see. Here's the tweet. The Queen of England died five months ago. She ruled an entire nation and accumulated more, than, more wealth than 99.99% of humans. And yet, you haven't thought about her except for this tweet. Now notice this really encouraging next line. You're gonna die. Everyone will move on. Do what you want. Now that last line, I don't agree with it, but the first two, you're going to die. Everyone's going to move on. And the whole church said, I'm depressed. (laughs) It's like, thanks, Diggs. Welcome to church. So glad that you're here. Let's be encouraging. You're going to die. People are going to move on. And it occurred to me, it's kind of an interesting thought. This woman who spent 70 years leading a nation who has had an outsized influence over global events, far more than I will ever have. And yet, I have not thought about her maybe once or twice since she died. Makes you wonder, it's kind of an interesting thought experience. It's like, if you don't think about people who are so important on a day-to-day basis, then maybe this question, what else am I not thinking about today? I mean, really, if you evaluate your thought life, what things are top of mind and what things do you rarely even consider? So for instance, for most of us, if you're like me, top of mind is going to be, well, you know, got to make sure that the kids are bathed or at least sort of scrubbed off. You gotta make sure that they're fed, gotta make sure that I go to work, gotta make sure that we you know, pay the bills, go to the grocery, whatever it may be. And we have so many different things that we do, things that are top of mind, that I realize it's possibly so focused on these important things that seem so important that 100 years from now, no one will care about that I sometimes may miss the most important things. Have you ever been there? Have you ever forgotten something that was so important? I remember when I was eight years old, we were at church. It was a Wednesday night and we were playing and I was playing, having a great time and kept playing and kept playing and kept playing. And I realized, where's mom and dad? They were supposed to come get me. So I started looking around the building. I don't know if you've ever experienced this moment of terror, but I was looking around the building and there's no mom, there's no dad. And so I see some of their friends like, hey, have you seen my parents? And they go, yeah, they just drove. Oh, my parents forgot me, isn't it? Now, now they would tell you that it was on accident. I'm confident and my psychiatrist would tell you it was not, but you know, that's just another story. But isn't it true that sometimes we are so focused on some things that we miss the most important things. And here's the most important thing. I'm just gonna say it to you. And you know this, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, the most important question, the most important thought that some of us never think about is simply this, am I saved? 
Like right now, right now, friend, if you were to say, right now, if Jesus were to come back, if the sky were to peel apart, if the Son of God were to appear, would I be going, yes? Or I'd be going, oh, no, I don't know. See, there's so many things that can come on our minds, but if you don't know that you're saved, there's nothing else that's important in this life, friend. And so over the next few minutes, I just simply want to walk us through what does it mean to be saved? Because sometimes when we ask, am I saved? We come to other questions like, am I saved? Or um, maybe this one, how do I get saved? Or how do I know I was saved? And I don't want you to wonder. And more importantly, it's not what I want. Jesus doesn't want you to wonder. And so we're going to look at a familiar passage of a man who is not saved, but then something radical happens. And if we'll listen to his story, I think we'll see what it means to be saved, how to be saved, and to know that we are saved. Does that sound good to anyone else this morning? Good, I'm glad. So in Luke chapter 19, we're introduced to a very familiar character. His name is Zacchaeus, and this is the story. Jesus entered the city of Jericho and was passing through. Now, one thing you need to know is this is the starting point of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem where he will be executed, where he'll be crucified. This is where he turns his face towards his death. And he was just passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. When? When? Today. Friend, Jesus can come to your house today too. He goes on. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to murmur. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. So Jesus said to him, Today, there's that word again, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now, here's the verse, church. You want to know why Jesus came? You want to know what Jesus' mission is? Here it is. Let's say it all together. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Man, if you've ever been lost, knowing someone came to find you is the best news in the world. And that's the news of the gospel. And it's seen through the eyes, this moment of salvation is seen through the eyes of this man named Zacchaeus. Now, we don't know a lot about him, but we know four things at least. First off, we know that Zacchaeus lived in the city of Jericho. He lived in the city. Go on to that next slide there, Phil. He lived in the city of, now one more, we'll go one more. He lived in the city of Jericho. Now, what do we know about Jericho? It was the first city that the Israelites in the Old Testament came into. It was the first place they had to conquer to enjoy their new home in Israel. Isn't it interesting that the first place Jesus moves through on his way to ultimate victory is the same place that God brought his people through originally, that he destroyed the city flat as a pancake, the giants were felled, and that was the starting point of the victory of God. And now he's coming back through that place, almost as if to say what I did in the Old Testament, liberating people physically, I'm now going to do, but I'm going to liberate you spiritually. So he lives in Jericho. It's a very wealthy city. According to a Jewish historian named Josephus, Jericho was called, quote, the fattest city of the world. Fattest, not in density, but in wealth. It was just such a wealthy place. And because of that, he made a very lucrative living as a tax collector. Now, what do we know about tax collectors? 
We know a few things, and if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard some of this. But let me remind you, a tax collector was someone who was a part of an oppressed people group. In this case, Zacchaeus was a Jewish person. And he had paid for the right to be able to collect taxes from his people and give to the oppressive Roman Empire. That would be the equivalent of a Jewish person collecting taxes during Nazi Germany and giving it to the Nazis. Can you imagine such a thing? How would people feel towards you? In fact, there was a statement that tax collectors were no better than murderers and thieves. This was the view of people. And Zacchaeus was one of them, but not just any kind. He was a chief tax collector, meaning he was so well off that he had other little tax collectors working under him. Because he would collect money, he would collect more than he was supposed to, and he'd keep the rest. So he became very, very wealthy as well. Now the fourth thing, what do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a wee little Man, I always think of the Lucky Charms when I say that phrase. <laughs> Does anyone else? You're just a wee little man. That's, te- oh, that's terrible. I won't do that again. <laughs> but here, some of the people will say, okay, so how wee was this little man? And the truth is we don't know, but, but there is some indication according to archaeological evidence. We've done some digs and here the great had some really big houses and all the Jewish houses. We sort of measured out the size of the average doorframe. And the average doorframe height in the first century, 2,000 years ago, was about five feet tall. Which means for him to be a wee little man, the average man was about five foot, which means for him to be a wee little man, I mean, he's much smaller. Now, I don't know how little that would be. I mean, he's like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to my little friend Zacchaeus. Come on up here, Zacchaeus. Say hi to everyone, Zacchaeus. Hi, everybody. Very good, Zacchaeus. Now go run along. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's how small, but he was a wee little man and everyone hated him. But then he hears this moment, something's happening. A man is coming to town and he wants to see it. And here's what I want us to see for the next just couple minutes. There are three things, three things that he does that I think if you were sitting with us today, he'd say, oh my goodness, if you're not sure you're saved, just do what I did and you can know before you leave that Jesus is Lord and he loves you. But there are three things that happen and we see this in his life. Number one, Zacchaeus, he's gonna lay down his pride in a moment. Number two, he's going to then get over the crowd And number three, he's going to welcome Jesus into his whole life. And so I just want to walk through these very briefly with you this morning. Number one, Zacchaeus, I think, would say, friend, lay down your pride. I did. You say, well, Zacchaeus, where in this text do we see the wee little man laying down his pride? And it's this weird little phrase in verse three. It gives us a hint about the pride and how he laid it down when it says this. Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus. Now for you and me, we look at that and go, well, I don't see how that's laying down his pride. So let me explain it this way. When was the last time that you saw a member of society, someone, yeah, you can leave that up, someone of of reverence, someone in leadership, someone who wanted to be dignified. When was the last time you saw a grown man race in front of other people and then shimmy up a tree in front of a parade? Even in our culture, we don't see that, do we? I mean, when was the last time you turned on the TV and you saw Governor Lee climbing a tree to see over other people's heads? And back in their day, they didn't wear pants. What did everyone, including dudes, wear? Long dresses. So to run, you did this. Even up here, that's embarrassing. And so he did something that was against his dignity, Is it possible, is it possible, friends, 
that the first and greatest barrier to you and I following Jesus, put this up, the first and greatest barrier to salvation is our pride and our dignity. That there are some things we just say, I, I just won't do that. It's too embarrassing. I can't admit that I did this. Now that's too embarrassing. But Zacchaeus, he just lays that pride down and he goes and he climbs the tree. Now put that tree back up for just a moment here. I want to show you this. This tree is actually in the city of Jericho. And a group of us saw this very tree just a few months ago when we were there. Some say that this is the actual tree he climbed. I'm not so, I'm not so convinced. But you can see he'd get up and there's nothing dignified about trying to shimmy up that thing, is there? And I just wonder if so many of us in this room, we wonder about our salvation because we've never been able to put our pride to death. Is that possible? That we are so afraid of what others think that we never come clean of what's going on in our hearts? I mean, when was the last time you saw another Christian just become bone honest about the issues in their life? Instead, often we dress things up and we wear a clean veneer over our lives and we are not honest with it. And so then we're worried, oh no, what if I'm not saved? Because we never come clean with the struggles and things that we're dealing with. A friend of mine years ago made this statement and stuck with me for over 20 years. He said, if in one moment in a church over everyone's head could appear for just a moment in big neon letters, the one sin that they struggle with the most Maybe pride or lust or greed or gluttony or maybe it'd be neglect or maybe it'd be your anger or maybe it'd be whatever it is. In that one moment, if everyone could see what everyone struggled with, he said, you know, the only thing that would surprise us is how similar we are. You go, you too? Man, that's my sin. You too? See, to experience salvation is not simply to be forgiven of your sins, it's to walk without the guilt of those sins anymore. And to enjoy the freedom of salvation, my brothers and sisters, is to lay down our pride and be honest about it. This is why our big brother in the faith, James says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Why? Because there's this thing that happens when we are honest about what's going on in us. And so he does something that undermines his dignity. The number two, second thing he does is then you have to get over the crowd, he would say. Now for Zacchaeus, it was because he had a physical impediment. He just couldn't see over the crowd. And so he climbs the tree. But for you and me to get over the crowd is a little bit different. See, there are two kinds of crowds in this world that many of us get stuck on. And maybe you're right this morning. Maybe you're having a hard time seeing Jesus because of the crowd that is in front of you. The two crowds, the two crowds tend to be skeptics and hypocrites. In fact, the second barrier to salvation is often other people. It's the skeptic who says, there is no God and you're a fool for believing in one. I mean, come on, we're enlightened. We have science. We have philosophy. We have explored the vastness of space. We are evolved human beings. There is no God. You're just an idiot to believe in one. And so you have a hard time seeing Jesus because of the skeptical voice. And then there are others in this room Because the church has not always lived up to her high values, you see in us an imperfect image of Jesus. And because you're looking at us only, you think that must be what Jesus looks like. And you say, I can't get past the image to the one. And so you just, instead of getting a clear picture of Jesus, you just say, I'm out. But I love what sweet Zacchaeus does. He doesn't give up because of the crowd. He gets above the crowd. He is able to get over the crowd. 
and he is able to see Jesus. Now, friend, how do we do that today? It's very simple. It's that we don't simply listen to someone else talk about him. You go and you listen to him personally. See, the beautiful thing about the scriptures is you will see a picture of a compelling God who loves you so much that he came for you. And guess what? He also got ticked off at the hypocrites. You're not alone. In fact, the word hypocrite, it's not a complex word. It simply refers to a play actor. In the first century, when you'd go to watch a play, people would be up on the stage and instead of necessarily just wearing makeup, they'd wear often big masks. And they were called hypocrites because they would be a person who's one way but looks a different way. See, Christians who sin are not hypocrites. You understand that, right? A hypocrite is a Christian who claims to be without sin. And John tells us, if you claim to be without sin, you are a liar or a hypocrite. So friends, and I just need to say this, if if your challenge is that the church has been inconsistent or hypocritical, hey, we get it. Guilty is charged. But I would challenge you to say, don't give up what is good about God because of something you have seen that is not good. And in fact, let me take it a step further. If I may be a little more pointed, if your whole contention is, I can't believe in something because there's a group of people who don't live up to their personal values. I would just ask you, do you have any values you yourself do not live up to? So instead, get a bigger picture of Jesus. He will not let you down. Zacchaeus did not rely on the crowd. He got over the crowd. He laid down his pride. He got over the crowd and he saw God in flesh, Jesus. But what's incredible, he didn't just see Jesus. Guess what? Jesus sees him. This is what happens next, the third part. He then welcomes Jesus into his home. Verse five, it says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, notice what he said. What's that word that he said first, church? No, no, no. What's this word first? What's this word right here? Yeah, he didn't say, hey, you. How, just just show of hands. How many of you have ever forgotten the name of someone at church before? And so you say, how many of you love the word brother and sister? Like, I mean, it's just, it's the save all. It's like, brother, I'm so glad to see you. Sister, what's their name? I mean, it's just, does Jesus pull a brother here? No, he just says Zacchaeus. Why? Because although Zacchaeus had never met Jesus before, Jesus knew Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus was even born. Friend, this may be the first day you get to see Jesus, but you're not here by accident. Jesus has seen you and he is calling you to him. His desire is that today salvation would come to your home. And so he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And this phrase, come down. He then says, immediately, Now, I love this because this phrase, there's a choice associated with it, isn't there? Everyone say yes. Yeah, there's a choice. He can choose to stay in the tree and keep Jesus at arm's length, or he can welcome him to his home. See, it's easy to come out into a common area and see Jesus from a safe distance where we don't actually have to invite him into the mess and the problems of our lives. But that's not what he says. Jesus says, you come down. I want to go into your home. Now, for some of you, that creates cold sweat, doesn't it? The thought of someone showing up unannounced saying, I'm coming into your house. Because come on, your house, my house, I won't speak for you, our house, that's where the piles of paper reside. That's where the dirty laundry is. And my wife, she's an amazing homemaker. She does a great job. The rest of us are slobs. She just can't keep up with us. Is that safe? Am I okay? Okay, good. 
So show of hands, how many of you here would say you have a junk drawer? Anyone here, junk drawer? Come on, all, all the honest people in the house, hold them up, keep them up, look around, look around. Doesn't that make you feel better for a moment? All right, keep it up, keep it up. No, 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 no. How many of you would say you also may have, um, well, you have a messy counter somewhere. Anyone messy counter? Okay. Do you need two hands for that one? Anyone? Okay. How about this? Anyone have a dirty closet somewhere that's a little, maybe your clothes are a little strewn out, laundry coming everywhere. This is the place that Jesus says, I want to come in and you don't have time to clean it up. Why? Because friend, I can't clean up my mess any more than you can. I need one to come in and fix it for me. Are you tracking with the story here? I know you before you knew me and I have predestined, preordained. This is a divine appointment that I would come into your house. And no, 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 leave the mess. That's my job to clean it up, Jesus says. And so he comes in, but Zacchaeus has a choice as every one of us has. Will I choose to come down and draw near to Jesus and say, here's the junk, it's okay? Or will I stiff arm him and miss out on salvation as it passes by? And then he goes on to this next phrase that I just find so compelling. It's not just that he has a choice. Jesus' goal is not just to visit for a little while. That word guest. See, all the people, they began to mutter and murmur and complain. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You can almost hear the under sinner, can't you? Do you know what that word, though, guest, refers to? It refers to a lengthy stay. Jesus isn't rolling in for a 25-minute cup of tea and he's out the door. Jesus is saying, pull out the guest bed. I'm staying for a while. Friend, Jesus isn't just coming in to say, hi. Oh, yeah, you do have a lot of junk. I'm out. His desire is that he would say, you see that room over there, the little guest room? Can I have that as my room? I love that bed. That'll be my bed and I'll stay here. And in the morning when you wake up, the first voice you'll hear, the first face you'll see is me. And then he says to you and to me, he says, and listen, if you'll let me live in your house, I promise I'll make a house for you one day where you can live with me. This is the story of salvation. Now, quick question. What did Zacchaeus do at this point to earn it? Nothing. He was a pint-sized twerp who stole people's money. And Jesus says, even in your house, I want to come. Even in your house, the one who is known so badly as to be named among thieves and murderers, even if you are a murderer, I want to come into your house today. Any adulterers, I want to come into your house. Anyone who's looked at things you just are ashamed of, I want to come into your house. Anyone who has told a lie, I want to come into your house. Anyone who is crippled by the sin of pride where you can't show what is going on, I want to come into your house. See, Jesus' heart is for the lost. That's why he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the perfect. Oh, no, that's not it, is it? The mostly well put together, the one who comes to church every Sunday with matching socks, that's the one, right? What does he say? I've come to seek and to save the lost. You see, fundamentally about being lost, you can't unloss yourself. And Jesus says, I'll do it for you. This is what it means to be saved, friends. And so then in verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up. And I love this. He came down immediately. He stood up. And after everyone's been complaining, I love this next statement. He says, look. And what's the title he gives to Jesus? Do you see it? Lord. He doesn't say, look, good guy, or good teacher, or wise man. He says, look, Lord. This is a statement of belief. You are not just a man. You're something more than that. And yes, 
And he says this, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, this is an incredible moment. You see, Jesus says, I will come into your home and I will live with you. That is a picture of salvation. And the way we receive it is to claim him as Lord, to come off of our high perch, to welcome him in. And we're going to talk about what that means in a moment with baptism. But right now, after this, the question then comes, so how do I know I was saved? Isn't that the question a lot of us wonder and worry about? Oh, no, I did it again. Am I still saved? I did it again. Am I still saved? Oh, no, I did it again. I did it Ah. Here's what it means to be saved. I want you to see it's so beautiful. Here now I give half of my possessions. Go back one more. Go back one more. There you go. Notice that phrase, pay back four times. That, that was not what was required of the law. If you go to the Old Testament law, there were requirements for if you took something that wasn't yours. So if you stole something, someone's animal, someone's thing, and you felt guilty about it and returned it, great. You returned it and gave 20% over the price. That was what you paid back. Now, if you were not remorseful and you were found out, you returned the animal or whatever it was, and you paid another 100%. So if you stole a lamb, you give back the lamb and another lamb. But if you stole a lamb, a dove, whatever it may be, and it died or you killed it to enjoy the meat or whatever, you are required by law to repay four times. Now, Zacchaeus does not say, only those that I killed the animal that I took will I repay four times. He says, if I have cheated anybody, out of anything, this is my heart. This is radical, over-the-top transformation of life. What was it that Zacchaeus was known for? Yes, he was a wee little man, but he was a wee little tax-collecting man who was known for his greed. The chief tax collector's chief sin was greed. And was the moment after Christ begins to move into his life, what does he do? Radical transformation begins. Repentance, turning around, not continuing down the old path. Whatever I was doing, that's not my love anymore. In fact, put this up. It's simply this. Next slide. The evidence that Jesus has entered my life is when my favorite sins are pushed out. That's when you begin to see that God is at work. Now, it doesn't mean that you are perfect overnight. In fact, we will all continue to sin until Jesus comes back. Can I get a mm from anyone else? <laughs> but here's what you will begin to see if you continue to welcome Jesus in is that those things that once held you captive begin to be pushed out. Let me give you an illustration of this. The best way I know to explain it. This is Zacchaeus. Now you say, really? This is Zacchaeus. All right, let me explain. The name Zacchaeus, do you want to know what it means originally? Say yes. I don't believe you. Say yes. All right. It means pure, innocent, righteous. How would you like to be one of the Jewish people? Whenever you call Zacchaeus, you say something like, hey, pure. He ain't pure. Hey, righteous. Not righteous. Hey, innocent. He certainly isn't innocent. This is the picture. In fact, what happens is over time, can you guys see this okay? All right, good. We'll try to make this. Zacchaeus, you and me, the life that we live, just the junk that starts to come in and swirl around. And the beauty of life, the name that he was given to your name was not simply an identifying mark to like distinguish you from another individual. It was a statement of who you are. 
See, there was a moment when he was born that his parents said, you're, you're pure, you're innocent, you're righteous. But he chose a life that was anything but pure, righteous, or innocent. And, and what happens is it starts to just mix in so much and we try to peel certain parts out, but then it gets stuck on us and we just can't get it out. And here's what most of us try to do. We think, okay, I've been saved. God saved me. I've been in the water, so I'm saved. And Jesus loves me, so I'm saved, so now I'm going to work hard. I'm just going to try to get rid of all the junk. And I'm just going to work hard. But here's the problem. If you're like me, there's always more junk. And you try to get it out, but it's still in there. And it begins even worse. It begins to seep down to the very center of who you are. And you say, Jesus has saved me, but I don't feel very saved. And many of us are crushed under the weight of trying to clean ourselves up. But did you notice Jesus never told Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, clean yourself up and then I'll come to your house. In fact, you get the order, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And then Zacchaeus begins to change. Do you see the order? Jesus comes in, the old stuff goes out. Are you seeing the change here? Let me put it this way. How do you and I exhibit the proof of Jesus's presence You don't do it by trying harder. You don't do it by digging it out. You do it by pushing and allowing Jesus just to come in, keep coming in. And you just keep coming in, keep coming in. And here's the beautiful thing. It's a continuing action. He doesn't stop the cleansing process no matter how long you are with him. And you'll always find more and he'll graciously say, I can get that as well. Can I come in a little deeper? Yeah, yeah, we haven't looked at that closet yet. Can I come in a little deeper? Yeah, yeah, I see that issue over there. Can I come in a little deeper? See, the proof that you've been saved is God is gonna begin to push things out. And some of you are going, but I don't see him pushing things out. Here's what I would invite you. Don't try harder, invite him in deeper. Welcome him into those places. Don't, when you sin, my friend, don't, don't run from the one who can heal you. Run to the great physician. If you are a cancer patient, you don't run from the doctor embarrassed that you have cancer. You go to the one who can get it out of your life. If Jesus is God, which he is, we run to him to save us and clean us. And the evidence is that over time you will, I promise, over time, if you continue to run to him, over time you will begin to look more and more and more like him. This is how you know you have been saved. And so then we come to this last moment, this promise that Jesus gives, and it's sort of the exclamation mark to the whole story in verse nine, when he says these words, today, wait, when is salvation available, church? Right now. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. Today, it's available at this very moment. In fact, did you know, after our worship gathering, one of our young ladies Lacey Mason, who's sitting right here in just a few minutes, she's going to be baptized. Is that good news to anyone else this morning? Yeah. And so after our gathering, if you want, well, about 10, 15 minutes afterwards, you just stick around. We'll have that. It'll be wonderful. But you can be saved today. And then this next little word, go back one slide. This next little word, that word salvation, do you notice that word? Salvation means God saves. It's what God does, not what you or what I can do. But here's what's incredible about it. Do you know what that name Jesus means? In the gospel of Matthew, when the angel comes and declares to this new mom and this new dad that you will have a little boy and you are to name him Jesus, he says, here's why. Because Jesus means God saves. See, when Jesus says today salvation comes to your house, salvation is coming to his house because Jesus is. 
It doesn't mean work hard. It doesn't mean try to clean yourself up. It means simply welcome Jesus in, welcome him deeper. And you can know today that you're saved. If you don't know that you're saved, I'm going to be in the lobby during our last moments together, this final song. I'd love to talk with you about it. Or if you have been saved, but you're just not 100% sure, or if you feel this guilt or this worry about where things are, friends, this is why God gives us the church that we may share our burdens, we may confess our struggles, and we can be encouraged. And to have a sibling say, I know what it's like. I've struggled there too. God loves you. Let's continue to invite them in. And then just do that. Take the next step. Invite them in. And so I'm going to pray over us. I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray. And then we're going to sing this final song. And this is just a moment for us to do business with God, either inviting the next step, meet me in the lobby, or telling him, thank you for saving me. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, Jesus, we thank you for coming in. As you pass through Jericho, you're passing through this room in this moment, and I believe you would want each of us to come down to you. And when we drive home, to invite you to be a part of that drive and to enter every place of our lives. Father, we ask that you would please speak to those this morning who are just, they feel the weight of guilt and shame. We've all been there. I pray that the guilt would not overcome your grace in their lives, but that they would say, there's a good God who will save me. We celebrate Lacey's decision. And we celebrate all those who are taking their next steps to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.